invite you to turn in John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, to chapter 3. We've moved on now, and um, we're sort of changing the scenery here, where Jesus had spent time with Nicodemus. We spent a few weeks on that as we looked at uh, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life and not perish. And so we saw the, it's as though we could see, the confusion by Nicodemus and his not understanding how to um, sort of let that coalesce with his understanding of the Mosaic Law, something that he had learned and practiced, something that he is the teacher of Israel of. So this is no lightweight. He left him standing and speechless, at least according to the eternal record. He says nothing through that last portion that we had gone through. We see that there's about to be some contention that involves a Jew. We don't know if that's Nicodemus or not, but we will press on. Nevertheless, the fading star and the rising sun, verse 22 to 30. Let's read together. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of the John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Father, we thank you so much for these words. We have much to to learn from these things. Indeed, we could review this portion of Scripture regularly, and still you would show us more and take us deeper and lead us further into understanding the significance of why you've apportioned this particular gospel, indeed all of the books of the Bible, all 66, to remain as your eternal record of your inspired word. And so, Lord, it is our confidence, it is our confident belief that these are, in fact, in the originals, your inspired words. And so we would do well to heed them. And so help us to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So all things, let's start with some basics so that we can build upon that. All things come and go in their seasons. Everything has a season in the providence of a sovereign God, and he appoints those seasons. This was important enough, I think, in the, yes, in that I wanted it 
as a starting note for us all as we go forward from here. And it should be obvious, according to the title, but especially the text that we've just read, the fading star is, of course, John the Baptist, and the rising sun is, of course, Christ. So there was a, a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher and uh, a naturalist named David Hume. Some of you may, might recognize the name. And when we traveled to Scotland, I got, we got a chance to see a big statue erected to David Hume. They venerate him there, right on the Royal Mile, going right down the main street of Edinburgh. And David Hume said, there is no such thing as chance in the workings of the universe. True. And then he said this, and this has stuck with me through the years. Chance is simply our ignorance of real causes. Now, I made you nervous by saying he's a philosopher and a naturalist. Are you okay with that statement as such? Chance is just our ignorance of real causes. Yeah, until we know what the cause of things are, we, we just mark it up to chance. That happened by chance because we don't have explanations. But you see, for a naturalist, they're just waiting for a naturalist catch it in the Enlightenment period in the 1700s. He's waiting for science to catch up, isn't he? See? And that's where he goes wrong. That's where he falls flat. His hope is that at some point, as a naturalist, as a scientist, that the scientists will catch up and explain why everything's here and works the way it does. But if you take that statement by itself, it's actually very true. Chance, if you want to use that word, and we don't typically make it part of our vernacular in the body of Christ, and for good reason, but if you want to use that word, is simply we are ignorant of the real causes of things. We know God is the first cause, yes? We don't know necessarily how everything works, and so he gives us science so we can make some of the discoveries of how he, how he is both the creator and the sustainer, how he upholds all things by the word of God. And so... It reminded me of Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7, which says, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. John's time is coming to a close. And it's for good reason, isn't it? Because the sun is now rising. But everything has a season. I think no one better than Solomon himself reflected on that when he wrote Ecclesiastes, and you're familiar with chapter 3, I'm sure. But I want, before we pass this interesting two verses in Psalm 75, I want to read what Spurgeon said. I think you'll appreciate it. There is a God and a providence, and things happen not by chance. Though judgment come neither from the rising or the setting of the sun, nor from the wilderness of mountains, yet it will come, for the Lord reigneth. Men forget that all things are ordained in heaven. 
They see but the human force and the carnal passion, but the unseen Lord is far more real than these, end quote. And even the things that you can see physically in this world and in the universe, God is more real. So we're to be assured, according to Spurgeon, indeed, according to the psalmist, that God has appointed the time frame. He created time. We've talked about that before. And he's appointed a season or a window of time. It's aeon in the Greek. The, when we uh, receive the translation world coming from the word aeon, it's a, it's a window of time. It's not, um, it's not uh, other ways that the word time is translated. So there's a time for everything. So Ecclesiastes, as I mentioned, verse 1 of chapter 3, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Ecclesiastes 7.14, in the day of prosperity be joyful and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other. I think we're receiving these things so that we're not surprised. And I'm struck by the perfectly calm, contented way the, John the Baptist is with saying, I need to step down now. I need to decrease that another step up and rise. That was his purpose, and we understand that. Ecclesiastes again, six and, uh, chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. For this, there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? It's not chance, is it? We can't explain the ways of God, but God knows. And those appointments are there. They're set in stone, you could say. That which God had has ordained will come to pass necessarily because it is God who fulfills it. His revealed will, which is what he calls us to, is not always fulfilled because it is man who fulfills it. And so when God appoints something, it must necessarily, it will come to pass. John embraced this. John the Baptist, when I refer to John, always don't make me say John the Baptist every time. I'll just say John, if that's okay. So in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made, this is God, of course, made everything beautiful in its time. Just wait. You'll see how the beauty comes out of this. Just hold on and trust. Beauty will come out of this because God is good and he only only produces things that are to be esteemed as good. Everything will be beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into the heart of man. And so there's where we wrestle. There's a sense in which we're eternal creatures, and he's placed that in the heart of all mankind, even unbelievers. I mean, that's just innately in all human beings, that there's something that's eternal. It's not just the existentialist, where all of this and when it's over, nothing. No, they have a sense that, no, there's more than this. We know what that more than this is, don't we? Because we have the Word of God revealed to us. So we have this eternity in our hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
Why is he telling us that? Could it be perhaps because we carry ourselves at times as though we're owed an explanation? It's funny, isn't it? Because we also act as though we ought to be able to hold on to a season. Seasons come and season goes. And and there's times where perhaps in your life and in mine where we've seen an elderly person and it makes us sad because they're holding on to some long ago previous season in their life and it's long gone. Seasons come and seasons go. This is the context in which we live. We look at the trees we see. It's winter headed into, I see the buds, they're headed, it's heading into spring. And though that is our day-to-day life, that seasons come and seasons go, yet we try to do this. But he says in Ecclesiastes, as I've just read, but so that you cannot know. You have eternity in your heart. It's God who appoints these seasons to accomplish His purposes. It's, it's stunning. It's, it rankles the human pride in our fallen state, the part of us that would be our own God and in control of all of our destinies. And so we want to hold on to things. And it's really nothing short of, of pathetic in some cases. So we, we should know. We should be prepared. Because all through the study of this particular passage and looking at the life of John, and by the way, this is... This is his final words in the eternal record. We don't hear from him again. But he's okay with that. That's what I want to know. How, how do you get that, John? How do you get to that? How do you get to where you can say, look, you guys need to settle down with regard to Jesus over there baptizing with his disciples because it's time for me to decrease so in our text, this one season is fading into the next and begins to grow. The lesser light, if you will, is the forerunner, the messenger, John the Baptist. It begins to fade, just like in the morning when, well, let's start with the night, when the stars are very, very bright. Stars that are temporary are shining best in darkness. But when the light slowly comes, they fade, don't they? Did they go anywhere? Did somebody turn down a rheostat and dim them? They've always been there. And John will remain somewhere. But God says, your time is over. And it's time for you to decrease So the lesser light is fading into the morning. The day star is here. The bright and shining star is here. And so they're going to see him. And that's what rankles the disciples of John the Baptist. Lesser light isn't enough to illuminate the full glory of God. So if the full glory of God is to be seen, especially in salvation, and the means of that salvation, the Son, Jesus Christ himself, he has to rise 
And so we see that reference throughout Scripture. He is the dawning of the light. Definite article, capital L, the phos. We are the Lucknos, and so is the John the Baptist, the smaller lamp. And those things fade as he uses them to come and go. But see, that's hard for us because, again, all we have is the perspective of our small lives. But everyone, just like John the Baptist, has a season, has a calling, and seasons come and seasons go. John 1, you will remember verse 4 and 5 and verse 8. In him was life. This is Jesus. Remember that? And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So there it is. And John's curious as to why they've forgotten what he already told them, because we read through it in the first chapter. I am not the Christ. Do you remember when he made that perfectly clear? Right in the beginning. Made it very clear when they were investigating him, if you recall that section. So we're going to break this down this morning in three sections, three verses each for the nine verses. Jesus arrives when souls confess, he rises on confession and people have faith and are baptized, right? So Jesus arrives when souls confess, verse 22 to 24. And secondly, we'll look at this frustration with John the Baptist's disciples in jealousy strives when rivals compete, verses 25 to 27. And finally, third, Joy thrives when work is complete, verses 28 to 30. So let's look at this first section. Jesus arrives when souls confess. See, we don't know Christ unless and until he has brought our heart to life through washing, of regeneration, made it alive, and we realize that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Yes? So the dawn is already rising. And when that, when that happens, when we make that recognition, we don't see anybody, not least in our experience, but there Jesus is at this baptism. Those people being baptized, we can assume, have made confession. They're the ones who have said, here's the long-awaited one, and, and we need him. I want to confess my sins, seek Christ for forgiveness, and be baptized. So Jesus arrives when souls confess. Souls don't confess, no Jesus. Not even a small lamp. Dust thou giveth. Not even a flicker. Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus departed the city of Jerusalem and some of the older versions like King James and so forth say that um, he went into or went out in Judea. Well, Jerusalem's in Judea. So he actually, it's right. I like this rendering in the ESV. He's just gone out into the country, some country area where they're baptizing. So 
John, we learn from John's gospel in chapter 4, verse 2, which will come to Lord willing very soon. It makes it very clear that Jesus himself did not baptize, it says, but only his disciples. So Jesus himself wasn't doing the baptizing, but it was in his name, in his presence, he's there. But his disciples were doing the baptizing. Verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. John had moved from Bethany beyond the Jordan. You remember when he was there, when he said, behold, the Lamb of God and so on. He has now uh, moved to this area because he is going to be baptizing. And this word Anon means literally many waters. So many springs, actually, which produce enough water for someone to be fully immersed for baptism. Verse 24 is interesting because it says, for John had not yet been put in prison. Why would, why would the human writer John put that in there? Well, because if you read the synoptics, you'd think that Jesus' ministry uh, started after John's imprisonment. That's the way it's written in Mark. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14 says it was that his ministry began after John was arrested. John's gospel actually has the correct chronology. Probably there's nothing in Scripture that shows us how long John the Baptist's ministry went, but um, maybe perhaps six months, a short time before he is in prison. But clearly Jesus' ministry has been going for some months. And... Um, so he's already kicked that off. So he's making it clear because remember the, the other three gospels, the synoptics have been around for decades. John was familiar with that. He probably had to answer people's questions because it's a little misleading. They're not all necessarily in chronological order. So you have to put that into consideration. Okay, so that's Jesus. When Jesus arrives... It's because souls have made confession. They're being baptized. That's what's going on. Secondly, jealousy strives when rivals compete. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So we don't know who the Jew is, if it's Nicodemus or not. Some, someone along in my reading speculated that, but there's nothing that actually confirms that in Scripture, so it's simply speculative. So the impetus for this discussion that took place between the disciples and this other man, it may very well have been over the purpose that the disciples had in uh, performing this outward act of what essentially we know in baptism is an inward reality. So baptism is an outward act. It's a public display of what I actually, what we actually believe it's our public way of making that clear to people, but it doesn't confer, confer any grace. It doesn't do, make any internal changes in us. It's simply a symbolic act. And so when you, if you have somebody there like Nicodemus, you can imagine an argument would stir up because what is he thinking of when he's thinking of purification? Something way different, right? So with with the... Jews with those, of course, that are 
priests and on the, in the Sanhedrin and so on. It's a ceremonial or religious rite. It's just something performed by man, just an external performance that's called for in the book of Moses. I remember when we were in Jerusalem a long time ago, um, when we were going in, they had unearthed the temple steps from the time that Christ would have been ascending them to go into the temple. It's really kind of a moving thing to walk on and walk up and see. And when you look down to the right, there's all these little square cubicles, just square after square. I don't remember exactly what the dimensions. I want to say, according to my memory, when I envision, it was probably maybe 10 by 10 or 8 by 8. They were small squares. And the professor that was with us that was explaining what we were seeing called them the mikvah. Some of you may be familiar with that term, the mikvah. The mikvah were the uh, pools of water that the priests would go in to purify themselves before they entered the temple. That's, that's their understanding. It's all something man does to obey the law of Moses. So you can see where this, this contention could have blown up with Jesus and his disciples baptizing people. So... This issue of uh, ritualistic cleansing, it's all through the Old Testament, but just to give you a few examples, Leviticus 17, 15 to 16, and every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, wash his clothes and bathes himself in water and be unclean until evening, then he shall be clean after evening. So you're given specific rules that you're doing in order to assuage God, at least through the Mosaic law, to receive forgiveness of sin and be able to participate in the rest of the things that go on in the temple. You had to do specific things. But if he does not wash them or bathe, in, or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So this is a moral issue. Obviously, it's clear from that verse there's sin there there's iniquity but there's something that he does to find forgiveness but you see that forgiveness is temporary isn't it it's it's simply temporary and it's meant to bide the time until the final sacrifice comes and he who will actually come internally to cleanse you okay and that's the work of the holy spirit so they didn't understand that so it's it's pretty easy to figure out what they were probably disputing over with this issue of purification. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Make yourselves clean? Well, this isn't a hygiene issue. It has a moral component, doesn't it? How do I do that? How do I wash myself? How do I dunk myself and receive the forgiveness of God? That's what he was trying to explain to Nicodemus, remember? If this is Nicodemus... Probably not. Because he understands what Nicodemus believes and what he's been taught and what he's been practicing. And he's saying, Nicodemus, remember what he said to him, you must what? Be born from above. That's an internal work. And it, again, if he had, could place his mind for even a moment on places like Ezekiel 36, 20, 25 to 27, it says, I will wash you. I will do that. He's going to do that. 
When his son comes, you see, and by faith you have that done. So these things are done because when uh, confession is made, the soul is saved, Jesus arrives there as you're making confession. You wouldn't be able to make that confession and seek forgiveness had he not already done that internal work. So that's, that's the issue that's going on here. So with Christ, when we're saved, there's an imputation of his righteousness in us. They're doing works of righteousness, and we see that in other religions as well, Catholicism and all the other religions that actually uh, do the outworking of the works, the uh, ex opera operato, as it's known in the Latin. So they're, they're, you're to work out the grace of God, and that's a big error in terms of your understanding of how we're sanctified. Regarding John, John the Baptist's view of baptism, Josephus, the historian who was around that time, or a little bit later, um, with regard to John the Baptist's view, he wrote this, that he, John the Baptist, taught that baptism would appear acceptable in God's sight if people underwent it not to procure pardon for certain sins, but with a view to bodily cleansing when once the soul has been cleansed by righteousness, end quote. You see? So John the Baptist understood what needs to happen here. He understands that people have to get cleansed from the inside. Jesus clearly explaining that to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Titus 3.5 has to happen. It is through a washing. It is through a washing of regeneration, bringing to life by the Holy Spirit that has to take place. And you'll recall all that. Verse 26, Then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. <laughs> Did you forget his name? All are going to him? I think there's still a few people around you. What's happening here? Good old-fashioned jealousy. Good old-fashioned rivalry. They didn't like that. Why? They had been following John the Baptist. He's their rabbi. He's their, their guy. In Mark 1, 5, it said of John the Baptist, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Did you know that there's another guy over here? Yeah, he has a name. He's actually the Messiah. How much did you miss? John the Baptist could say. But what's remarkable again is none of this is found in the heart of John the Baptist. No rivalry. No competition. So jealousy strives to strive is to struggle in opposition. It is to, to contest, to battle. That's what's going on here. Something's rising up in their heart. All are going to him. To them, this is a competition. He who has the most people getting baptized wins. <laughs> Instead of being absolutely thrilled that more and more people are being baptized, and look, Messiah himself with disciples is baptizing. How about that? How about that? So it's nothing more than petty jealousy and tribalism. 
And, and we see that as part of human nature because we see it rife throughout the culture. The, the sad thing, of course, is that it finds its way into the church. That's the sad thing. That instead of being happy for someone else, we have grumbling hearts. It should be so-and-so, or it should be me. They can't be happy for somebody else that's doing well in God's calling. It, it is a real challenge to the human heart. It's constantly challenged. So petty, jealousy, tribalism, it's infectious, it's contagious, and it's injurious to the church. Infectious, it spreads. Contagious, and it injures the body of Christ. Yet we do it anyway. So this is characteristic of all of us in our flesh. You remember how Paul dealt with that straight out with the church at Corinth? Sure you do. Chapter 1, 10 to 15. I appeal to you, brothers. This is how important and emphatic it is with him. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's quite serious here that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. He goes on to say the household of Stephanus, and if there's any others, I don't know, but I'm just so glad it wasn't any more than that for what you are doing with this. You know how to do division well. That's why the divorce rate is as high as it is in the body of Christ. It should be to our shame. That's why churches split petty jealousies, tribalism. 1 Corinthians 12, so much later in that same letter, verse 24 to 25, but God has so composed the body, listen to this in juxtaposition with what I just read to you, there, that he so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. I thought about that over against this idea of, no, I'm over here and I'm over here. It, it, we're so, we're so uh, independently thinking. We're so egocentric. It's like, I'm just going to go out. And, and I've pictured a body, right, where the spleen says, I'm done. I'm out of here. I prefer so-and-so. I prefer such-and-such. The hand's like, you know, yeah, it's looking good somewhere else. Or the eye. Look, you've got two. I don't really like what I'm seeing around here. I'm going. This is a season of quitting. This is a season of dividing, of pulling apart. When the Christ himself that we commemorate in Holy Communion died and shed his blood so that we would be united. How about that? It's shameful. Verse 27, John answered, 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What a humble thing to say. You, you, he could be saying, you're looking to me like I'm somebody in and of myself because you've been listening to me so long and following me so long and learning from me so long. You need to understand that I am not the Christ. The only reason I was called as a forerunner because, and that's why I started this sermon with the sovereignty of God in his divine appointments. The principle of God's sovereignty runs through all of this. Each man's individual calling, the distribution of the gifts, and the opening of the opportunity for somebody to actually fulfill a task for God is all up to whom? God. We need to make this happen. Whoa, really? Yeah, we need to make this happen. First Corinthians 4, 7, For who sees anything different in you? This is Paul writing against same to that same beleaguered Corinthian church. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That level of discernment that you have that makes you contentious and that level of discernment that allows you to judge a situation, who gave that to you? <laughs> and look what we do with it. God, have pity, have mercy. Philippians 1, 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ. Here's Paul's perspective from envy and rivalry. Oh, you're going to let them have it, aren't you, Paul? But others from goodwill. Yeah, that's the ones on our team, right? Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's right, the good guys are, yeah. Right, they're on your side. This, by the way, is a prison epistle, one of four. And so he's in prison. Yep, the good guys are on your side, Brother Paul. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry. Now he's going to let them have it, right? They're reading this letter in Philippi. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. <sighs> Give it to him, Paul. Give it to him. No, he's like John the Baptist. What does he say? If this doesn't get our attention, I wonder what would. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. No, we talk about the other churches, don't we? You know, the the bad guys. We're one of the good guys. First Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And then he answers his own question. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. That's it. Sinners saved by grace who had a particular calling. That's it. 
And John the Baptist is saying, look, I serve my time. You shouldn't have latched on to that season as though it was owed to you, as though you could hold a star in place. I don't want things to move anymore because I really like the way things are. It fulfilled his purpose. I thought for perspective this morning, it reminded me of Isaiah's perspective on nations. Isaiah 40, this isn't in your notes, Isaiah 40 Uh, Verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I think we could use a healthy dose of that perspective. J.C. Ryle said, the whole verse is a most useful antidote to that jealousy which sometimes springs up in a minister's mind when he sees a brother's ministry prospering more than his own, end quote. Hebrews 5, 4 to 5. And no one takes this honor for himself. But only when God called, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself. This is Christ himself. He didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. Even Christ appointed by him who said, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So as much as we would like favorable seasons to remain, the remaining of it remains with God, doesn't it? But we want to hold on to a good one. And as much as we might long to have a different season than the one we're stuck in right now? In our judgment, it is a sovereign God who must bring it about, right? Would that we would embrace that. Number three. So, jealousy strives when rivals compete But here's a tremendous blessing. Joy thrives when work is complete. When the work you are called to is done, and you've done it, as as Paul wrote when his life was coming to an end, "I've, I've done it all. I've kept the faith. He's ready to go. See, that's... John the Baptist. I'm ready to decrease. I'm ready to step down that he might be able to increase. He's not going to be able to increase, at least with this jealous rival, rivaling crowd, (laughs) unless I straighten this out and he straightens it out. Like, look, I fulfilled my job. I'm the forerunner. I'm the messenger. Message delivered. A Messiah has come. Probably the greatest statement he made was, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise the Lord. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's here now. You know, the, the temptation in the flesh for somebody to try to hang on to that kind, of, that kind of fan club that he's got, right? Who wants to say, no, it, no, I, I'm done here. And, and that's your Messiah. Seek him. That's got to be tough, but it doesn't seem tough in anything with John because where the Lord calls, he equips you. And so John full well knows his calling as the forerunner. So it's nothing for him because his heart isn't jealous. His heart isn't contending. His heart isn't trying to force things. His heart isn't divisive. It's not competitive. It's none of those things. He did his job. And so he's about to tell us where his rejoicing comes from. So he's saying, basically, remember, then for us in our text, it's John 1.15, where he said, as I said earlier, I am not the Christ. He made that clear. He didn't try to compete with Jesus. He didn't look for his own following. He was never bothered with something like competition between rivals We're supposed to all be on the same page, fighting the same battle together. And the problem with Christians many times, even though you're taking all of this this incoming fire, is you're getting shot at, and you look, you're getting shot at by the people that are in your foxhole. How long can that go on? So this verse should be for us, for forgetful hearers. How quickly we forget the things we don't like to hear. Yeah? Can we all fess up? You guys forgot. You yourselves were witness of me making that very clear to those religious ones that came and showed up and started asking him all the questions. Well, who are you then? Remember that? I'm, and he starts out with, I am not the Christ. I didn't ask you if you were the Christ. Wow, you're getting right to it, aren't you? Yeah, because that's really what you want to know. No, I'm not competing with him. I'm the forerunner. You should know your scriptures. I love what Jesus says when he confronts him in that way. He says, have you not read? And these are the geniuses. These are the religious, these are the teachers of Israel off the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. You ought to know this stuff. Should be, should, he, he could say, should, do you want me to read it to you? Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He has his bride. So... When Jesus arrives, soul confessed, the, the, the bridegroom is here. He's met with the bride. That was his job, John the Baptist's job, is to get the bride ready, remember, because the groom is coming. And now he's here. The friend of the bridegroom, who's that? John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, 
rejoices greatly. He's, he's correcting them. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I hear him. I'm done. He's here. This is him. The one who I told you about. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, I, and he's just rejoicing to hear his voice. You can't rejoice. You can't even hear if you're filled with jealousy and petty rivalries. It's not going to happen. Your mind's going to do funny things with the truth at that point. So by custom, the friend of the bridegroom, as he's describing himself here, he's the, he was the means of communication between the bride and the groom. Because the groom couldn't go see the bride, right? Do we still do that these days with weddings? Where he doesn't get to see his bride until the wedding day? I remember. I remember when they had us all out in the courtyard at Calvary Chapel. I remember that day like it was yesterday. And she's, the photographer's having us do all that silly stuff. All right, I want you all to jump in the air. Why? No. <laughs> and, and we're all doing all these fun stuff. We had fun. And I look, and here comes this Buick Riviera that I recognize peeling through the parking lot. And this woman with a veil on turns and looks like this. <laughs> that was my girl. I'm like, hey, I know her. I know that car, actually. Slow down. <laughs> It was glorious because the calling of the bride, as it's referred to, all of the, the groom and his groomsmen are down front and we're facing the front and they call it the turning of the bride. When that music, and I, she allowed, blessed me by allowing me to pick the music and of course it was extremely dramatic. So <laughs> she got like Ode to Joy, right? Coming down, down. And, uh, and they're playing it and I turn and I was like, whew. Do you see why he uses that analogy? This is powerful. This is beautiful. The bridegroom's here. He has his bride. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice. He's here. No, you're fussing over who's baptizing more people. What? See what we miss when we descend into pettiness like that? It's just amazing. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I can't get any more effervescent in my joy. My heart is overflowing with joy. And you guys are, what are you bringing to my attention? That he's over there baptizing? Are you, are you kidding? You see what I mean? When you juxtapose those things, it gets a little bit petty, doesn't it? And it gets a little embarrassing, or it should. Fussing about these things, Ryle again said this, He had no greater joy than to hear of the voice of Christ, the bridegroom, being listened to by believers, the bride. Oh, he was like, look at, look at them listen to Jesus. Look at that. He's come to take away their sin. 
He'll give his life for that. He goes on, the whole verse is the most instructive picture of a true minister's work. The truest happiness of a minister should consist in Christ's voice being heard by souls, end quote. That's his single job. The people would see Christ, so the people would hear Christ. They want to hear his voice through his word. That's his job. That's it. That's it. Apart from that, he's nothing. He's nothing. Best man at a wedding didn't grumble because he wasn't the groom. Unless that happened to one of you. I'm sorry if it did. Gee, I wish I was the groom. We could talk about the women that don't catch the bouquet, but let's not go there. (laughs) Always the bridesmaid. So his role, his single role, is to make the way clear. Remember his announcement? Make your paths straight. He was talking the paths of your heart. Make that entrance wide. Make it flat. Make it plain. So that the king of glory, your groom, your bridegroom, might walk in to the center of your heart and take up residency there. (sighs) That was his job. As he hears the bridegroom's voice committing himself to the bride, we are in a very intimate setting. He's making his vows, he's committing himself to her, to love her, to cherish her, to nourish her, to provide for her, and to protect her. Listen to him talk. I don't hear anything like that in our fallen world. Do you? Pures, pure as can be are his intentions for his bride. Love always seeks the purity of its object. And love which was in its object was in a, a distant away is love in a state of longing. And now, love when its object is near is love in a state of indulgence. See, John gets that. He's filled with this. So you can imagine what he thinks of what they've come to whine to him about. With all that we have to rejoice in. His heart is fully satisfied. His role is complete. So joy thrives. It flourishes when the work is complete. And for each and every one of us, the tasks that we're called to, that he's opened the doors for, that he's equipped us for, but he wants to remind us there is a time frame. The time I created is passing. It's never not doing that. You have a season. Seasons come and seasons go. One writer wrote, John betrays no sense of envy or rivalry. It is not easy to see another's influence growing at the expense of one's own. It is even less easy to rejoice at the sight 
But John found his joy completed by the news. The disciples brought verse 30 as we close up this morning. So this is it. Here we listen to John's final words. I must, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's not we must increase. He's here. It's going to be me and him. Partnership. No, I have to step back. I have to let him step up. The last recorded words in Scripture of John the Baptist. So he didn't wrestle with any of these things. Quite the opposite. He was filled with joy that another is excelling far greater than these. You know, as I'm finishing up on this concept and preparing us for the Lord's Supper, what were Jesus, one of Jesus' final words on the cross? It is finished. Joy thrives when work is complete. It is finished. John 17 in the high priestly prayer, verse 3 to 5. And this is Jesus praying to the Father. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've done it. I've completed it. This is John the Baptist. This is to be us. Verse 13 of John 17, Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That joy that is literally unspeakable, uh, indescribable joy of Jesus Christ when he says, Tetelestai, when he says in the Aramaic, it is finished, I am done. You can't see it. Even if you were, you were there, I'm sure you couldn't see it as he, his emaciated body is hanging there bleeding on the cross. But that's what he's feeling. That sense of joy, that 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 separation from the Father as He bore all of our sins and said, Father, Father, why have You forsaken Me? It's over now. He sees the Father again. He's with the Father again. He is risen again. The work is over. This is what John the Baptist is trying to describe. This is what he's rejoicing greatly in. And now this joy is given to us. That's what we commemorate here. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what joy set that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to read something to you as we close. says, from the preacher's complete homiletical commentary. In the gospel, Christ is the rising sun. Now he is risen. 
Then he was at the dawning. Now he shines in meridian splendor. He it is without doubt who brings the light of heavenly day into the souls of men. Let him enlighten you. Let him be your heart's true sun and rise upon you every day. Every day with its failures and falls threatens night for the soul and the sun of your life must disperse the darkness. Let Jesus go forth to you as a bridegroom who comes out of his chamber and let him rejoice as a strong man to run the race through your heart from one end to the other and to enlighten you entirely. Then the wrath of God passes away afar and you need not wait for eternal life for it is yours already in Christ the Savior. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Forgive us, O Lord, for our blindness, our willful blindness, who wouldn't look at all of the glories to rejoice in and instead focus on earthbound fallen things and get caught up in jealousies and petty rivalries, all the rest of it. Forgive us, Lord. We're here. We gather here so that our hearts might be freed from that, to soar and to be with you. We call down upon you to be with us, O Lord, as we commemorate that great sacrifice that was done on our behalf, that we might be able to rejoice with John the Baptist, with many others since, and so, Lord, prepare our hearts now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.